Let's open our Bibles this morning again to Psalm 19. started, I said the psalm divides nicely right into three sections, so naturally we were going to do it in four sections. Cause, uh, this section in particular is just, uh, there's just too many things in here uh, to touch on them lightly. And, and we wouldn't, we couldn't possibly do justice. I mean, we could spend a couple more weeks if we really wanted to get into this, but um, we, this will get us going, okay? How about that? So if you're able, would you stand with me and we'll read Psalm 19. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, open our eyes, open our minds and hearts, that we would have understanding, that we would see your word and not just see it and hear it and read it, but Lord, that it would come and dwell within us, that we would live it in all aspects of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So this morning, uh, I'll, I'll begin in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 9. That's as far as we're going to go today. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. It is the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God, which is our topic this morning and our topic from really the, the very first sections of this uh, 7 through, through 9 here. Scripture says uh, itself that it is a light unto our path. We believe it is the Word of God. We believe it is inspired. We believe it is without error in its original autographs. I mean, it used to be good enough that you could say, I believe the Bible. And everybody knew what you meant. But now you have to qualify with all these other things. Well, you believe the Bible. Do you believe to be, it to be inspired? Well, yes, because Timothy says, Paul says in Timothy, it is God-breathed. Okay, Do you believe it to be without error? Well, yes. You mean this one? Well, in the original autographs, without error. But we believe that the Holy Spirit has preserved it sufficiently for us today, that what we have here in most translations is a very good translation, very solid, very close as, as possible uh, over these years to the original autographs. Um, well, do you believe it to be the literal Word of God? Well, I don't believe in wooden literalism. I mean, there's different genres of literature in Scripture. That's obvious. There's poetry, and there is poetry, what we call poetic license and, and descriptive things like that. 
Um, so there are allusions and illustrations and things like that. So you take those things within the context of the type of literature that they are. It is not a history book, although there is history. It is not a poetry book, although there is poetry. Uh, it is not a song book, even though there are songs. It is not a, uh, uh, a book of law, although there are laws. There's not a book of prophecy, although there is prophecy. It is a book about Christ. From beginning to end, and you go, well, Rand, there are a lot of things in Leviticus. I don't think Christ is in there. Well, you have to read real close, okay? Read real close. But so we believe in the Word of God. We believe that when the Word speaks, we are commanded to listen. I mean, this is what, what we're, we're here for. It's not like, oh, well, yeah, I know the Bible says, but I believe, oh, that's trouble. Okay, that's trouble. Because <laughs> what Randy believes really doesn't carry any weight if it's based upon what I simply believe. Okay? It must be rooted in the Scripture. It is what we are to believe. It is how we are to behave, how we are to live. It is the message we proclaim. The Bible claims to be the very, very Word of God, and it does so in a very clear and unambiguous fashion. The Old Testament writers refer to what they wrote as the Word of God over 3,800 times. They say, listen to the Word of God. The New Testament writers quote the Old Testament as the Word of God 320 times and refer to the Old Testament over a thousand times. They're quoting the Old Testament. Jesus himself claims that both the Old and the New Testaments are inspired by God. But as we know, not everybody believes this. In fact, many people, and some even within the church, go to great lengths to, in their attempts to disprove that this is a reality. Now, we all kind of have an idea of these things, but I just made a, a mishmash of a list, okay? And I'm not going to expand on them. I'm just going to kind of reel them off. A couple I'll elaborate on because you might not have never heard of them. So here are groups and ways that people have attempted to discount the Scripture as we have it. Um, you have the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christian Science, the Unitarianism. You have some really bizarre cults. And usually cults use portions of the Bible or come right alongside of it and then diverge at crucial areas, especially at the person and work of Christ. They often want to add to the Word of God. Some groups will have their own translations. The Jehovah's Witness has their own translation. Okay, and they kind of uh, they do very poor translation work uh, there. You have a group, Open Theism. Uh, it's a view that starts with the denial that God perfectly knows or controls the future. Basically, He doesn't know any more about the future than you or I. Okay, now frankly, is that is that the God of Scripture? Uh, I don't find Him there. Um, we have the new perspectives on Paul, which want to assault the New Testament understanding of the doctrine of justification. From the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, we have a group called the Jesus Seminar who basically wanted to determine what are the true words of Jesus, and they threw out everything except like two verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, a bunch of academics. So we can really trust academics. Sometimes. Okay. We have higher criticism, the German liberalism that really 
It kind of snuck in from the late 1800s and, and 1900s, snuck into the seminaries and to the denominations and to the colleges, and really we're, we're still kind of uh, dealing with that. When I went to, to seminary in Pittsburgh, it was still steeped in kind of the German literalism. We have the, the, the neo-orthodoxies um, that said, well, the word is, it might be good for us. We better pay attention to, to the Bible. There might be something there for us, Okay. You have the battle to defend the what we'll call the singularity of Scripture. The singularity of Scripture. This grew out of uh, the Jesus movement of the 60s where everybody kind of had their own thing going and their own word from God. And, and this is what God wants me to do instead of saying, no, this is what God wants you to do. You have psychologists and pragmatists who who say, well, that just doesn't really work in real life. And, and maybe Scripture has something to add to human wisdom. Now, that's, again, that's trouble. More recently in the church, we have uh, groups uh, that, want to de- that want to attack the Bible and its clarity and its, its ability for us to comprehend it. Okay? They deny the, what's called the perspicuity of scripture the clarity oh we believe these things we believe these doctrines but we just can't explain them okay uh, well there are certain doctrines you can't explain okay but you have to hold to them and because they are foundational in what we believe um, so out of that comes well if we can't explain it we hold to them but we're willing certainly to to look at other ways to explain God so we go outside of scripture we go outside of God's word and try to understand God with uh, a little little help from the Buddhist or the Hindu or or everybody else's spiritual experience we try to add it to give us clarity on what scripture says I, I just said it was a mishmash okay so let's look at what Enough about those who don't believe in Scripture. Let's look at what Scripture says from Psalm 19. Now, from these, we have what we have here in the first six verses of the psalm. Remember that God reveals His glory in creation. He reveals His existence and who He is in His created world. And then last week we had a little introduction to the moral absolutes of the Lord as they're revealed to us in His Word. And then we had just a, a little peek at, at, at what comes in 7, 8, and 9. So in 7, 8, and 9, we have six statements, or six characteristics and six effects. Six characteristics and six effects. The six characteristics of Scripture are it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, and it's true. That's what it says here. The effects are it restores the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever. And as an addition, they are all together righteous in the sense that they produce comprehensive righteousness in the life of the believer. So this is pretty much a comprehensive statement about the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, what do I mean when I say the sufficiency of the Word of God? Well, is it, 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 it's not, obviously, it's not sufficient to teach me trigonometry, okay? An entire year of trigonometry was not sufficient to teach me trigonometry, okay? It is not sufficient to teach me how to drive. But what it is sufficient is it is sufficient to teach me how to apply these things in a moral and ethical fashion that glorifies God. 
that I may conform my life to the things of the Lord, that, that they look at me as a thinly veiled Christian. When I say a thinly veiled Christian, it should be obvious. Okay, here I am, I'm an accountant. And this is the veil of accountancy over top of me, but you ought to be able to see right through that veil of accountancy and see, but at his heart and at his soul, he is a believer. And he applies the things that he does in his profession in a manner which glorifies and praises our Heavenly Father. Okay, so that's, that's what we mean by this. It is sufficient for us to know these things. All that God wants us to know is here um, about Him, about our sin, about our salvation, and about how we are to live. That's why at the end in Revelation, uh, the Spirit prompts John, and John writes, don't add anything to this book. In fact, you're going to be in big trouble when you start adding other things. And you go, well, Randy, isn't that what the blank pages are for in the back? Again, no, it's not. Okay, you cannot add to the book. Okay, it is here. This is it. It's the, the cartoon of, of the guy and he's sitting at his desk and he's got his pen out and he's going back and forth and somebody comes by and says, oh man, are you, are you underlining the, the stuff that's really important? And he says, no, I'm crossing out the stuff that doesn't apply. Oh, no, no. It all applies, whether we like it or not. And there's nothing that should be added or taken away from it. And they're very hard things for us in there, but yet... They're there for us. So everything that the human heart longs for can be answered in Scripture. You long for transformation. The Word of God can transform your life. You long for wisdom and discernment. You long to be able to sort out the issues of life. The Bible is able to make you wise. You long for joy. You long for a sense in your life of settledness and happiness and peace. The Word of God is able to do that. You long to see and understand the difficult issues of life. You long to make sense out of things. Now, I don't say these things come like this. Okay, Sometimes when we pray and we're in the midst of, of these types of questions, Lord, I have no joy in my life. Lord, what are, is it that you're doing? I'm, I'm just struggling here. Can't you do something? And sometimes when we pray, the Lord brings those things to us. Other times it is a process. It is a process of learning and understanding His Word and having it dwell within us. Okay, You long for something that is constantly righteous. You long for something that is pure in your life. You can find it in God's Word. So let's look at these six statements. And today we're only going to look at the first two. And next week we will look at the next four. So verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect and its effect is is restoring the soul. It, this passage here, and the way that it is structured here, views Scripture as God's law for us. It's almost as if He is the manufacturer and He has written a manual for us. Okay? God went and He formed us and shaped us and He said, oh, uh, I'm going to give you instructions on how you are to live. Now some of us, when we open a package uh, to put something together and the instructions fall on the floor, we just look at them, okay, and we go about it, okay, and then we wonder why we're halfway through and it, it just doesn't look like a picture, all okay? right, and then we have other people who are, you know, they, they get the manual, the manual out and they, they lay out all the nuts and bolts and the pieces. Uh, Judy and I did a project together, we put together a TV stand and it was perfect. It was perfect. Why? Because she had the manual and I had the screwdriver. 
And she told me which screw to put where, and it just and the thing is solid as a rock. Now it doesn't work out if I do it by myself. Okay. This is God's word on how our lives can be lived to the fullest, because that's why Christ came, that we might live to the fullest, the fullest as defined by His word. Okay, not as opposed to the uh, defined to the rest, as opposed to what is defined by the rest of the world. We, the fullest is defined by his word. So the law of the Lord is perfect, perfect, not as opposed to imperfect, but perfect as referring to not incomplete. I hope I didn't make that tougher to understand. It is perfect in the sense that it is complete. It is full. What we need to know is there. It is, in a sense, the information is perfected there for us. Okay? It is not exhaustive information. Everything is not there. But it is, not in, it, is, it is complete about how we are to live so that our souls may be restored. It is comprehensive about that subject. It leaves nothing out about that. So it is, in a sense, all-sided on how we are to live. It is sufficient in its fullness. The effect, it says, is restoring the soul. And that word restoring means transforming the soul transforming the soul remember romans um oh chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 do not be conformed to this world but be what transformed how by the renewing of our minds and where do we renew our minds in the word of god in the word of god don't ever think there's anything that can come close to the power of the word of god so the bible is it is perfect in that sense. It is comprehensive. It is all you need for total transformation. It is all that you need for conversion. It is all that you need for restoration and regeneration, for spiritual birth, for sanctification. It is all we need for those areas. And the Word of God provides this for us. Now, obviously, things are brought through the Holy Spirit, etc. But let's look over at 1 Peter, if you would with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And we're going to look at a couple other places here in First Peter in just a moment. In fact, let's go to, back to 22. That's where the paragraph starts. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, how? Not of seed which is perishable, but of imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. This seed is imperishable. This word of God is imperishable. Okay? It is the power of God unto salvation. You think, oh, I'm trying to get my mind around this. Okay? I'm, this is the power of God unto salvation. Yes, it is the vehicle and the means through which its proclamation God uses to bring change in our lives. Well, can't He use other means? Well, He might use other means. We know He definitely uses these means. 
Okay, we are born again through the word. We are sanctified them. We are sanctified by God's truth. It is his word. The word is the agent of transformation in our lives. So it is the law of God. It is perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul. It restores the soul. So let's look at the next one, but stay in, chapter, in, in, in Peter. In fact, go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at something there. The second one is the testimony of the Lord is sure it, make, it makes wise the simple. Okay, and uh, I like being wise, uh, but to be wise according to the world, you have to be, according to the Lord, you have to be foolish often in the eyes of the world. So the first one, in a sense, the law looks at the Bible as instruction. The testimony looks at the Bible as God's divine witness of himself. That the word of God is God's witness, his own self-revelation. I mean, where else are we going to know about God? Well, obviously, the first six verses said we can go out into creation and see God's divine revelation. But that only tells us about God, much like the first chapter of Romans that, that says... We are without excuse in our knowledge about God, but we don't know the things of Christ. We don't know the things of salvation unless we come or until we come to God's own self-revelation as, as he is revealed here in his testimony of his word. When you open the Bible, God speaks. It's his testimony. He's got a lot to say about himself. Okay? So the second thing about his testimony is scripture is God's own self-disclosure. It is his own self-disclosure. I learn all that I need to know about how God acts, how he acts in a saving manner towards me, in his word. I can see, as I said, in creation, he reveals himself. But when I need to know about salvation, when I need to know about how am I to conform my life to the things of Christ, they are revealed to me in scripture. What I need to know about God personally and for salvation is here in his own testimony. Okay? It's, it's good to read other things that help us understand Scripture. It is best to read Scripture. It is best to read Scripture. You can say, oh, yeah, I've read, you know, I've read eight commentaries about Romans. And how many times have you read Romans? Well, you know, it's in the commentaries. Okay, Luther would get up and he wouldn't read, he wouldn't preach a book until he had read through the book a hundred times. Have you read through any book a hundred times? Book of the Bible. He said, well, Ray, that was before they had television and the internet. I mean, what else was he going to do? Okay, pick a small one. Okay, pick Philemon, read it a hundred times. Pick Jude and read it a hundred times. Okay? It will be so steeped within you. It will fill your mind and your heart. And Luther said, I've got to have that before I can stand up in the pulpit and declare it. I have to understand every little bit of it. Well, Scripture is the testimony of the Lord. It is sure in a world of things that are not certain. It is sure in a world of things that come and go. It says, don't be tossed about by every wind and wave. Okay, you've got to stick to the things which are sure. Okay, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 19. Now remember, Peter, what kind of experience did Peter have with James and John and Jesus? Okay, Up there on the mount, it was the mount of 
what do we call it? The Mount of Transformation. Up there. And what happened? You see Jesus and, and um, who else was there? I'm, I'm blanking. Uh, Moses, thank you, help me. Elijah, was he there? Okay, and, and it's great, and you see this glory, and Peter's up there, and he sees this stuff. Okay, now, now if, if I had seen that, I'd want to come back and start telling people about it. Man, you know what I saw? You didn't see it, but I saw it. Let me tell you what it was. It was Jesus, and I saw Moses, and they're going, but Moses is dead. But yeah, I saw Moses, and he was there, and on and on. But Peter, he, you don't hear him talk much about that in Scripture. What does he say in verse 19? And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. We have something that's more sure. Peter, he's not up here saying, you know what, my experience is so solid. I want to tell you what I saw. He says, no, I want to tell you what the word of God says. Hmm. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn over there. Some people would have thought that Peter's experience was greater. I mean, don't you? Frankly, we like to hear about people's stuff. Okay, I like to hear when they see something cool. I like to hear when something big happens in their lives. Okay, because it's personal and there's this touch. And, and when, you, when you begin to talk about something that you saw, imagine the excitement that Peter would have had in his heart sharing about what went on up on the mount. Okay, but he says, I've got something more sure about that. And when he says something more sure, he's saying, what could be more sure than my experience? God's self-testimony. His witness to himself, that is even more sure. I might misunderstand my experience. I might misinterpret my experience. This is God's communication to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is Paul. Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't like to talk about things that, that happen in his life. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Paul's talking about himself here. Okay. Now the third heaven. The first heaven, if you walk out there and look up at the blue sky, first heaven. Second heaven, you look up at the stars and the planets. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is where God dwells. Okay. That's how it is, is structured here. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Do we hear Paul talk about this event much? I mean, is he making this part of his regular testimony to every church that he goes to? Let me tell you, I was up in the third heaven. Now, I can't talk about it, but I was there. Okay, I got the secrets from the Lord, just me and him. No, that's not what Paul says. He doesn't go there. Why? Because it was only his experience. This experience is not repeatable. This experience is not be shared by anybody else. Peter and Paul are basically saying the same thing. I could have boasted in these experiences, but what am I going to boast in? God's self-witness to us. Because why? It is sure it is unadulterated. It is not left to our own interpretation. God says, I am this way. Oh, but I think he's this way. Wrong. He says, I am this way. Now, just recently, 
recently, when I say recently, in the past couple years, there have been a couple books about people who have gone to heaven and come back, okay? And I'm only going to focus on one because if, you, if you've read the news about this, you know there was a recantation, a recantation? Uh, the author recanted the book. Um, and it was a little boy, and he died, and it was the, the boy who came back from heaven. Okay, and then there's another one who said, uh, I, I don't know, another book about a boy who went to heaven. Well, this one you know, has been selling and, and is making money, but what it was, it was the dad who basically said, son, this is what's going to happen, and we're going to write this book, and began to put thoughts in his mind, and the boy went, yeah, and, and on and on. And this is, the mother really never bought into this, but it was selling, and uh, so I'll just read a quote here. The decision to pull the book comes after Alex Malarkey, Malarkey, that's his name, uh, <laughs> wrote an open letter to uh, Lifeway and other retailers. Um, says, I did not die. I did not go to heaven, Alex wrote. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. Okay? Now here, what we have is something that people bought into. And I've read books about they're called near-death experiences. And... You have people who die, and, and, and the, one that, the last one I read was about a, a neurosurgeon who had no belief at all, okay? And he had this terrible disease that came upon him suddenly, and, and he was out for a period of time and saw all these things and, um, and, and lived, uh, you know, he, he lived again and talked about that these were things of heaven. Now, they weren't the things that are described in, in Scripture, and he came back, and when he came back, and I'm paraphrasing here, the best he could do was he became an Episcopalian. Okay, it doesn't say, now I'm not digging on Episcopalians, they're believers in Episcopalians, but it doesn't say his life was changed and he became a believer and a follower of Christ. He decided that he would look into it more and the vehicle for that was the Episcopalian church. Now, I want to tell you, if you go to heaven and the Lord takes you there and reveals things to you and you come back here what what should we expect from you bam i mean you you've seen it your life is completely changed you ought to be joe saint okay because you know what awaits you know the truth and the truth is found here and it has been elaborated to you for whatever reason that's not what happened to this guy and i'm only i have very small experience in these things that's not what happened to this guy Okay, it's not what happened to this boy. So it was all a fake. Now, just think of all the people who got on board and said, "Oh man, the boy's been to heaven and back." No, his experience can be corrupt. What is the one thing that can't be corrupt? It is the Word of God. I mean, we can corrupt it, and we've done a pretty good job with it. But it is God's self witness to us. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. To understand this, you have to understand the word Hebrew. For simple means one who lacks discretion, one who lacks maturity, one who lacks wisdom. It is synonymous with a fool. Uh, the root of the word for simple means an open door. Okay? And what happens in an open door? Things go in and things come out. And there's really no discretion. If you just leave your front door open all the time, 
who knows what's going to run, run in your house, okay? But our front door is, causes us to have discretion about who comes in and who goes out. That is the fool. But Scripture, God's self-witness to himself, makes wise the simple. So a fool lacks good judgment. He's considered naive, inexperienced, undiscerning. God can take that person who can't discern, who can't understand, and by his word make him wise. And the Hebrew word for wise does not mean intellectual. It does not mean like like the Greek word Sophia for wisdom up here. It means in its application to make him wise. Wise for the living out of the scripture. Wise for living out the things that God has revealed about himself in his word. Wisdom in this aspect is the practical application of what we find in his word. We don't have to add psychology. We don't have to add sociology. We don't have to have pragmatism to it. Here is the wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through what? The folly of what we preach. And what is that folly? Folly is the word of God. I mean, goodness, if you stood up here and just came up with something on your own, we would all be wasting our time. Psalm 119, which is really an expansion on Psalm 19, says, Teach me good discernment and knowledge. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditations. God, in his love for us, gives us his word. The foolish ones are the ones who don't see it and don't obey it. We'll look at the next four words for us next week. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light into our path. And you not only reveal how it is that we should live, how we should walk, but you reveal yourself in these words. You reveal your love for us. You reveal how much you care for your creation. You reveal that before the foundations of the world, you had chosen us in Christ. That it was your plan that he would come and give his life for us. Not because we were good enough. Not because we were something special, but because you had determined it and you loved us. And as a demonstration of that love, you were willing to give your son. And he, in his love for you, and in his obedience, and his desire to fulfill your plan, and his love for us, came into this world and took on the form of a man, gave his life on a cross. It doesn't end there, Lord. We know that because on the third day, that grave was empty. And it is that power the power that raised Christ from the dead that is, is at work within each of us today, within each of those who belong to you. It is that power that's available to us. 
fix these things in our hearts, Lord, that they would not be wasted, but they would become a reality in our daily lives that we belong to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.